you can't get much better than just literally sitting on a deck with a fresh split cooked lobster, fresh crunchy bread and a salad. I mean, that, that, that's a whole afternoon right there. Just, just add the wine. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Making a career change from being a corporate manager to becoming a fisherman is a significant transition that can be both exciting and challenging. The decision to switch careers is often motivated by a strong desire to pursue a passion and live a more fulfilling life, such as being drawn to the ocean. The first step in the process of changing careers is to assess the skills and knowledge that you currently possess and how they align with the new career. In the case of becoming a fisherman, it's important to have a basic understanding of the ocean and fishing practices, as well as physical strength and endurance. If necessary, additional training or education may be required to ensure success in this new career path. The next step is to research and network within the industry to gain a better understanding of the day-to-day realities of being a fisherman. This can include learning about the various types of fishing, regulations, equipment and market trends. It's also important to connect with other fishermen and industry professionals to gain insights and build relationships. Or you can do as Marcus Nolay did, merely take the plunge. For this now veteran Apollo Bay lobsterman, the move seemed logical. Hi there. My name's Marcus Nolay. I am based in Apollo Bay on the southern coast of Australia, smack bang in the middle of the Great Ocean Road. We actually had a holiday house just outside of Apollo Bay and we're enjoying that enormously. Um, Always loved the coast and being near the ocean, in and on and under the ocean. And uh, we were just walking down at the Apollo Bay harbour one day and there was a gorgeous traditional little crayfishing boat sitting there and I had a cardboard sign in the window and it said for sale boat plus license plus quota and I just looked at that and I thought oh what my life could be so different and what do I do do I do I do nothing and then wonder on my deathbed what what life could have been or do I buy this boat and become a rock lobster fisherman so I did the the obvious thing really, which was I bought the boat and became a rock lobster fisherman. Well, yes, it's a bit odd, really. Um, I've actually got a background sort of uh, in in IT and uh, in business sort of transformation. I've worked all around the place uh, overseas and uh, with a lot of sort of big corporations, everything from the Australia Post to the banks to uh, some of the oil and gas companies overseas. Actually, back back in the day. Um, so it was a big departure from my working career, but as I say, I've always uh, loved the water and the boat. In fact, when we came back from living overseas for five years, rather than do the responsible thing and, and buy a house and start a family, my partner and I, uh, we bought a yacht and went sailing for a couple of years. So uh, clearly, clearly there's a, a drawing of the sea that's, uh, that's pulling me out there. For a new entrant into the fishing industry, the early days can be challenging, but also exciting. It involves learning the basics of fishing practices, regulations, equipment and market trends, as well as developing physical strength and endurance. Building relationships with other fishermen and industry professionals is also important. Additionally, adapting to the lifestyle changes of working long and irregular hours and spending extended periods away from home may be necessary. However, the satisfaction of providing fresh lobster for the Apollo Bay community and contributing to the local economy can be a source of pride and fulfilment. It was pretty challenging, John, not, not, not surprising. I mean, whilst I had the, uh, 
the boat handling skills and, and all of that side of things squared off. Obviously, I'd never been a commercial fisherman before, so there was a, there was an awful lot to learn and a lot of a lot of trial and error really. Uh, one of the key factors, and I was really fortunate, not not initially because when we first started fishing, everyone like all the local fishermen thought that you know we were completely crazy, and of course no one would come fishing with me. Uh, so it was it was me and my wife. So we would go out and uh, uh, we would we would we would fish, and after after months, if not you know, a year or so, local fishermen sort of thought, oh, well, they, they do actually come home, so that's that's something. And then the the son of the chap that I bought the fishing boat from, he he decided that he would finally come out with me, and uh, which was great. So he'd had a whole life, you know, fishing on the sea. And uh, so, and he was just a fantastic uh, decky. And so once I got, uh, once I got Glenn on board, um, that was really helpful just in, in, Learning sort of the real technicalities of and crafts of of, of that type of fishing, um, and it was great. And so we had, we had a good, really good partnership for quite a long time there, um, and and happily fished the, the southwest coast here. So, uh, but you know what, you can you can you can fish your whole life and still you're, there's still something to learn. There's uh, there's a there's a lot to know, and and things are always changing out there as as we know. It was oh, actually I remember I still remember that sort of first time pulling up the pots and actually seeing seeing those uh, beautiful red creatures there it was it was just so exciting I mean I've always loved fishing and had a passion for fishing and actually I took we, we, <laughs> my kids wanted to come as well so we, 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 it's pretty hilarious really it became a family affair there for a while so I had the uh, you know young kids coming out on the boat and uh, and they they loved it as much as as, as, as we did really so yeah look mass, massively exciting huge a huge adventure. Um, you know, I, I didn't get rich on it. Put it that way. <laughs> but it was, none, nonetheless, it was a, it was it was great. It was great while we were doing. The Cape Otway region is located on the southern coast of Victoria. It's known for its rugged coastline, scenic views, and diverse marine life, making it a unique fishing zone. The combination of favourable habitat, ocean currents, and limited access make Cape Otway a prime region for southern rock lobster fishing supporting both commercial and recreational fishing activities while also promoting sustainable fishing practices. Look, it's, a, it's, it's all about the environment. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, the, uh, the waters down here, uh, some of the you know, cleanest, most pristine waters on the planet, uh, as is the environment more generally. Um, it's very, uh, we don't have any major issues uh, as you find elsewhere around the country with things like uh, major on-land agriculture causing problems into the water. So we don't have major uh, agri- on-land agribusiness that sees silt runoff or you know vast nutrient runoffs running into the water to sort of muck up the environment. So it's a very, very clean environment. And also we've got cool waters. So um, the southern rock lobster, by comparison to other rock lobsters, is, is quite a slow growing creature so from settlements when the when the rock lobsters sort of settle on the reefs they float float around on the ocean for a couple of years in a planktonic state and then when they settle on the reefs it takes about another seven years for them to become legal minimum size so that's that's quite a slow grow when you compare it for example to a tropical rock lobster which could grow to a grow to size in about 18 months so i think it's the cool waters the, the pristine conditions and that slow growth, which just leads to a, a really premium product. I think we've got a long way to go on, on really getting the most out of our lobsters. 
um, you know, traditionally Australian Australians aren't sort of that adventurous with their seafood. There's a lot of people who eat fish who all they eat is a is a white fillet on a plate, maybe with some crumbs on it, and that's about the extent of it. So with crayfish, a lot of people have grown up with it. It was always traditionally, you know, for anyone on the coast, it's been a good treat. Christmas, Easter, you know, people would often get lovely lobsters. They'd split them and and they'd eat them. Keep it really simple. The taste is is absolutely superb if it's fresh and, and well cooked. But where there's a lot more we can do. There's there's they're a very versatile uh, food product. Um, you know, everything can be used in a, in, a, in a rock lobster. You've just got to take the time to know how to pull it apart, get get the get the meat out of it. But even then, the shells. You know, the shells themselves can be can be used uh, to make stocks and you know a great base for dishes like a bouillabaisse and things like that. So so I think once we can educate people about how to get more out of your lobster, uh, then I think people won't be sort of put off by the price. Everyone think it's funny, you know, people think rock lobster is an expensive product, but, but they, don't, they don't think twice about going out and buying a dozen oysters. But, but by weight, you know, you don't buy oysters by weight, you buy them because you buy a dozen or half a dozen. But by weight, oysters are probably twice as expensive as lobster, but no one, no one ever thinks about it like that. So, so it's sort of, it's got, it suffers sort of a, a, a reputation of being inaccessible and expensive when in fact it kind of isn't. And if you learn how to do more with it and get more out of it, I think people will, will embrace it more because it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a beautiful product. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's, it's out there on its own. A typical day fishing for a small southern rock lobster fisherman involves a combination of preparation, fishing, sorting and selling of their catch, while also adhering to local regulations and sustainable fishing practices. It also requires a good measure of patience and a load of luck. Well, we'd often do, more often than not, we'd do day trips, uh, but we would go out, if we were going further afield, we might go out for three or four days at a time. So it always always begins with... uh, provisioning of the vessel so we would uh, load up with uh, bait and ice from the Apollo Bay Fisherman's Co-op. Um, the fishing fleet here wouldn't exist without the Fisherman's Co-op and the Fisherman's Co-op is a real uh, hub and a base both providing goods and services to the fishermen but also uh, buying the products from the fishermen. So we would start off obviously at home base, provision the vessel and, uh, and we'd head off. Now depending on where we were fishing uh, if we were fishing nearby, you could, you could you could be shooting or pulling pots within about half an hour or 45 minutes. Um, but if you're going further afield, like right down past Cape Otway, down towards Moonlight Head, it might take you about four or five hours um, of steaming time just to just to get down to the grounds. So, uh, but once you get there, you just got to work through the gear. So we were not huge operators. Uh, we would we wouldn't fish more than probably 50 or 60 pots at a time. Um, other larger, faster boats are allowed. To, well, you're allowed to fish in Victoria uh, up to 100, up to 140 pots. Um, but yeah, we would, we wouldn't, we would never do anything like that. So it was a, it was a slow, thoughtful day. That's that's how I can best describe it. The closure of the China market for Australian rock lobsters due to trade disputes and the effect of food service closures from COVID-19 closures resulted in a significant shift in the business models for Australian lobster fishermen. By focusing on the domestic market, exploring new product lines and targeting local tourists, the fishermen of Apollo Bay were able to adapt to the changing market conditions and ensure the survival of their industry. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's been massive, John. I can't I can't think of uh, you know more more disruption being thrown at an industry. 
Um, I mean, we had the whole, obviously, you know, everyone's been affected by COVID and, and all of the, the, the shutdowns. And, and and for us, you know, it's, it's, it's not just what's happening in Australia. Of course, it's what's happening overseas. So for Southern Rock Lobster, which has uh, in more recent times been a, uh, an export product, so, you know, quite a lot, probably 90, over 90, 95% of all the Southern Rock Lobster, so that's lobsters caught in South Australia, Victoria and Tasmania, uh, <clears throat> and, and New Zealand, actually, it's the same species, um, that was exported live to China. So on top of all the, the, the tourism and shutdown um, with COVID, we then had the, the actual lobster import ban from China, which stands to this day. Now, that, that was really devastating because um, China uh, appreciates these premium products and sets the market price for it. So when China shut that down, uh, the whole bottom just dropped out of the market and businesses had been built around that market and industry literally had to do a massive rethink about what they were going to do to survive. Unfortunately, finding other markets is not really an option because other markets will take the product, but they won't pay a price that makes it worthwhile to export the product. So our focus has really shifted to the domestic market and and what we can do better here. Uh, Fortunately for us in Victoria, we actually don't produce a huge amount. Just by way of comparison, the total amount of Southern Rock Lobster we catch each year here in Victoria is probably in the in the order of say three hundred tons. If I compare that to Western Australia, where they've got Western rock lobster and they're producing about six thousand tons, and they've got a lot less mouths over there to put that tonnage into, they're facing bigger problems than we are in terms of what to do with product. I mean, we've got great tourism here; it's starting to come back. Uh, I mean, we should be eating all this product right here at home and exporting the experience, and that's what we're trying to focus on. Interestingly enough, you know, in the years preceding COVID and then the shutdown in China, um, we we had already recognised that, you know, there was a high risk with having so many of our eggs in the one basket with China, so to speak. And we had really already embarked upon a a sort of marketing and promotion effort to, to better to better promote what we've got here and promote the local consumption of it. So we had ironically already sort of started on that journey to de-risk the business. And then, of course, COVID and the China shutdown, it really just accelerated that. So we're, we're sort of just progressing with a strategy that we sort of already had in place. And with the right sort of support, because we're fortunate we're in, a, in, you know, we're in a tourist hotspot here on the Great Ocean Road, I think the future looks really good for us um, in that we can really tap into that uh, it's the foodie experience. You know, there's a lot of people who are really interested in food and where it's come from, and they really want to go to those places and have a great experience. Now, we can we can offer that with the right support, uh, and that's going to be a, a win-win, a win for the fishermen and also a win for the state of Victoria. Through a combination of effective management practices, favourable environmental conditions and ongoing monitoring and research, the Victorian Southern Rock Lobster Fishery remains healthy and sustainable. Well, interestingly enough, the um, slowly over time, the fishing has actually been improving. So when I first started, the, uh, the, the CPUE, or the catch per unit effort, uh, which is like a pot lift average, um, <clears throat> depending, it varies seasonally, of course, but you know, we were, we were always hoping that we might, we might get to a one kilo per pot lift uh, scenario. 
And if you wind the clock forward about 15 or 16 years, uh, in the western zone of Victoria, that's what we're actually seeing now. We're seeing catch rates of uh, up above a kilo uh, a pot lift, which is, which is really fantastic because we use that from a fisheries management perspective as a, as a proxy for the biomass. So that sort of tells us that uh, we're doing the right things in trying to improve the, the stocks in the ocean. But it's a challenge because, you know, we're working against the oil and gas industry and, and the damage that's done with seismic testing in particular. So it's a bit like trying to fill a, fill a bathtub when you, when you haven't got a plug in there. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll get there eventually, but you're going to waste a lot of water along the way. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sort of a, a half glass full kind of guy. Uh, I've always thought, despite all the challenges, that the, there is still a, a great future for uh, fisheries here in the state of Victoria and elsewhere around Australia. Um, I think we have to get smarter about how we do things. You know, as an as Australia-wide level, you know, we're still only just starting to kind of get a little bit better coordinated. I mean, we've got Seafood Industry Australia now at the national level. Um, we've got peak bodies at the sort of state level, but, you know, they're they're not really as vertically integrated as well as they should be. And I think we've got to, and this is really a spin-off from sort of country of origin labelling, but we've got to, you know, if we don't mark, if we don't promote and market our products better and explain to the consumer the difference between the fresh local product and other uh, products of unknown origin, you know, people aren't informed enough to make a choice. I mean, you can go to you can go to a, a discount store and buy a, a four dollar t shirt, you know, or or you can go to your local market and get a, a handcrafted, hand printed, organic cotton t shirt made in Australia. It'll cost you fifty, sixty bucks. Now, people do that, and they get the difference. You know, I'm prepared to spend fifty bucks on this t shirt, but you know, or I'm going to spend four bucks on that one. I mean, it's the same with seafood. If you, if over seventy-five percent of the seafood in Australia is imported from an unknown origin, from unknown, you know, fisheries management practices, from unknown occupational self health and safety, you know, environments for workers, then yeah, you can get a really cheap product. But what are you buying, you know? And and that's what people need to know. I think the more we can educate people about both the quality of our seafood and and the quality of our industry, then people can be informed enough to make choices I think they want to make. There's more interest in food provenance, food miles, quality of food, and also personal safety and and and, and the traditional having a fair go. You know, everyone in the supply chain needs to have a have, have a job and needs to come home safely. And that's that's something that we can offer. Regional food festivals can be incredibly important for small coastal towns, providing economic benefits, promoting local producers and their products, and building a sense of community and pride within these communities. For Apollo Bay, its annual seafood festival has helped cement its position as one of Victoria's favourite tourist destinations. Yeah, look, it's it's fantastic. I mean, I think it's a good example of uh, we're sort of (laughs) punching above our weight there. Um, but it's really resonated um, with with so many people within the industry, and I think this has been another problem for the seafood industry, the commercial catch side of it anyway, is there's been a lack of uh, integration across the supply chain. So, you know, there was a disconnect between the fishermen and then, you know, the wholesaler, the retailer, you know, the, the chef and all, all of those sorts of things. At the Seafood Festival, we've, we've really been able to bring all that together. So we've got fantastic 
um, you know, chef ambassadors who, who, who love what we're doing and are more than happy to be uh, to be part of it and have some fun. I mean, at the seafood festival, we had Paul Weston River Cottage uh, clambering over the, the, the back of the breakwater wall with his snorkel and mask on his head, grabbing an octopus uh, to put on the barbecue for a cooking demonstration. I mean, he totally hammed it up, but he loved it and had a lot of fun and so did everyone else. So, yeah, that's the sort of thing we're doing. We're having fun, engaging the broader community in what we do and provide people the opportunity face-to-face to talk about seafood, talk about the industry, ask their questions, discuss their concerns. And, and it's those authentic connections and conversations that we have around the festival which have really positioned us as something quite unique. And I, I suspect others will, will, will start to follow suit because it's a format that we've proven works, it's popular, and it's really great for the industry. Fostering new entrants into the seafood industry is important for promoting innovation and creativity addressing issues of succession and intergenerational equity, and building a more diverse and inclusive industry. By supporting new entrants and providing them with the skills, knowledge and resources they need to succeed, the seafood industry can continue to thrive and grow for years to come. But this is not always a simple job and requires a creative and collaborative effort by many to succeed. It's, it's a real challenge. I think it's one of the biggest challenges for the industry. Um, I know that for a while now, um, there's been programs running like the NSILP, the National Seafood Industry Leadership Program. Um, I actually have went on that program myself a number of years ago. Um, you know, that, things like that are really positive in, in giving younger fishers the chance to learn new skills and, and be more active in environments that they're going to have to be active in politically to, to secure the future. But at a practical level... There are some real challenges. Um, everyone's sort of gone to ITQ, the transfer, uh, sorry, the quota, quota-based fisheries, which which produces a consolidation of the fishery and it increases the price to entry to get into the fishery. Now they're they're, they're known outcomes of an ITQ fishery, um, which which all policymakers <laughs> say are unintended consequences, but then they're they're certainly not unknown. Um, so we as an industry have to overcome that. How do, we, how do we, you know, lower the barrier of entry for young fishers? At the moment, for a young fisherman to buy a licence, buy a boat and get started, I mean, they need literally millions of dollars. So we have to come up with a way of helping young fishers get, get a start, or otherwise there won't, there won't be uh, a future. So we've decided in the co-op, we recently bought a fishing trawler. So we as the co-op actually bought the fishing trawler and bought the licence because that way we can actually get create opportunities and give young people a chance to actually get out on a boat, build those skills and actually decide what sort of future they want in the seafood industry. Um, the boat itself was already operating out of Apollo Bay Harbour and had been uh, modified to become a, uh, a – it's a small indoor uh, inshore trawl vessel um, – ideally suited for the environment around here. Um, so the opportunity arose for us to purchase the vessel, uh, keep it in Apollo Bay and bring it in under sort of the, the direction of the, of the fisherman's co-op itself. So, so we looked at this strategically um, that it's not just a fishing vessel. As I say, it's an opportunity to get young people in and on board quite, quite literally. <coughs> Pardon me. And, uh, and also, 
from a fishing co-op perspective, it gave us a chance to bring fresh local product right to the co-op with the, the lowest food miles you could possibly imagine, but also with variety of seafood that arguably people don't see because it's just not worth fishing. You know, bigger boats won't bring certain products in to market because it's just not worth their while. And by the time they get into market, they're sold and they're taken somewhere else. The value is just not there. But for us, you know, pretty much everything we bring up, um, we'll do something with it. You know, we've got great chefs in the in the co-op. Um, our standard now is 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 special sort of seafood platters of the day uh, with whatever comes off the Tambo Bay. So people are learning more about the variety of seafood we have. Uh, we've got fresher local product, and and people people love the story. Stewarding an industry can be rewarding, providing the opportunity to take responsibility for its long-term success, shape its future, build relationships with stakeholders, and make a positive impact on the lives of many people. It always started, and I guess it will always end with the ocean. Uh, you know, I've always I've always been mucking around, as I said, <laughs> near it, on it, in it, under it, <laughs> and, and I think that's the thing. It's a it's a mag- that that intersection of of ocean and sea, I just, you know, I've always lived my life in that, in that zone, that literal zone. And uh, it's, it's, it's magnificent. You never get sick of it. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that I'll, I'll, I'll do, I'll do for the rest of my life. Despite the challenges, the decision to pursue a career as a fisherman for Marcus Nolle has clearly been rewarding. For him, his first love of the ocean offers a sense of freedom and connection to nature that can be difficult to find in any other career. Combining his corporate managerial experience has been a benefit to his business, but more broadly to the fishing community of Apollo Bay and the Victorian rock lobster fishing industry. He is a seafood leader whose passion, experience and commitment is a constant inspiration to all across the seafood industry. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtails Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.